Morning, brothers. Let's pray as we begin. Father, as we come to your word, please prepare our hearts to hear you and to press your word uh, into the very core of our beings and live it out for the glory of your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, perhaps one of the most common cliche questions around has to be, who am I? Uh, I did a quick Google search in preparation for this morning and I found out that everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Jean Valjean, uh, from John Zizioulis to Derek Zoolander, has struggled with this exact question, who am I? But uh, the thing is, as cliche as the question is, it is a foundational question for life and one that we all seem to struggle with. And so you think about uh, the identity politics that goes on around us and the utter chaos and confusion that erupts for so many people in our culture when they try to answer that seemingly simple question, who am I? But it's not just them out there, is it? I think we're all going to face times where we feel like we just don't know who we are anymore. Uh, you might be even going through a time like that right now. Coming to college may have even precipitated it for you, uh, especially less than three weeks out from exams. Or maybe you haven't faced it yet, but it will come. You know, the hits of the failures that destroy your confidence. Now, you or someone you love experiences suffering that just turns life upside down and dashes your dreams. Or ministry or just life turns out to be disappointing and draining, maybe for years on end. And when all that happens, it's very easy, isn't it? You start to feel like you've lost yourself, like you don't know who you are anymore. Now, I start with this because Psalm 139 tells us that there is a way to get our view of knowledge right and get a firm grasp on who we truly are so that we have strength to stand firm in the ups and downs of life. But it also tells us that this true knowledge should be both utterly confronting to us and utterly comforting, especially as we think about our frailty and fragility. It's a well-known psalm, uh, it's a familiar one, uh, but it's one of those Bible passages that I re find really helpful to come back to again and again and just ground myself in God's perspective. So I've got three points from the psalm, simple points. They should be coming up on the overhead at some point. God knows you, God loves you, and God rules you. So let's go uh, point one, God knows you, verses 1 to 12. So the overarching main topic of the psalm is that God knows you, verse 1. Uh, sorry, uh, yes, verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. And this really becomes the persistent drumbeat in this psalm. God knows everything about you. Uh, have a look at verses 2 to 5. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe all my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand upon me. Uh, God knows everything about us in terms of space, Verses 7 to 12, whether, whether, wherever you think you can run from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol in verse 8, from the east to the west, verse 9, he is there. There's no way you can hide from him. Uh, he knows everything about us in terms of time. Verse 16, from before we were born until the number of days ordained for us ends. God knows each and every aspect and moment of your life in detail. And the critical statement comes in verse 6. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. 
And I think verse 6 gives us the first key to understanding true knowledge and true identity, and it may come as a bit of a surprise. You see, what is critical to David is not so much what he knows of God, although that is still very important, but rather what God knows of him. In other words, true knowledge starts not from us. What do I know? Not even what do I know about God, but from God knowing and what he knows about me. Uh, And I hope you don't miss how confronting this truth is in a room full of theological students and lecturers. Our college program revolves around each one of us building our knowledge of God. Now, I'm so thankful for that. May it always be that way at more. But there is a danger in it, isn't there? Of falling into thinking your identity and value lies in you gaining knowledge, whether that's primarily reflected in your marks or your ministry competence. Verse 6 reminds us it's not. We do not have all the answers because we are not the all-knowing God. And yet, I think that's something that's a little bit healthy for us Sydney evangelicals to be reminded of every now and again. Uh, We kid ourselves if we think that ministry is all about having the right, tight theological answers to everything. Sometimes we just won't know. There are things that are beyond us that are too hard for us to work out, and we need to be okay with that. Now, unfortunately... I'll just tell you now, you cannot use that answer in a more college assessment, all right? But it is a good reminder to stay very humble in your learning and in your ministry and very aware of how small you really are and how little you really know. But ironically, I think this acknowledgement of how little we know is the foundation of true knowledge. Because it means that we push to say, no, this is God's will, not ours. He is the one who knows how it all works because he made it and he rules it. And so for us, true knowledge comes only when we listen humbly to what God tells us of how his world works and of our place within his plans. Otherwise, what happens is we twist and distort and ultimately destroy his world and ourselves. And so the first point from this psalm is that true knowledge starts with God and not us being the one who knows everything. Uh, But before I move on, I just want to add a quick little side note that, of course, knowledge in the Bible is much more than just information. I'm, I'm sure you know that the Hebrew verb to know is primarily a word of personal relationship, often very intimate relationship. And this relational sense of knowledge is actually key in Psalm 139. In other words, to be known by God is not just that he is aware of you, that he can read your mind, that he knows every detail of your life. No, to be known by God means that he has graciously put himself in right relationship to you as your God so that ultimately your life and salvation are not in your own hands, but in his. And this is ultimately why it's so critical to start with God as the one whose knowledge ultimately counts. I was thinking about how to illustrate this a little while ago. And, uh, you know, in my younger uni days, uh, I used to do a little bit of clubbing, you know, visiting Berry Street in North Sydney and Retro in the city, that sort of thing. 
Uh, but there were those nightclubs that were very, very difficult to get into, that you had to line up with, and, you know, it was very, very hard to get in. And uh, just imagine yourself in the line of one of those nightclubs, ready to get in there and go hard on the dance floor, <laughs> trying to get in. The bounce is in the way, right? But then you see a celebrity pull up in a car and get out. Right, the celebrity is just about to head in. Imagine if you went up to the bouncer, tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, hey, I know him, I know him. Can you imagine what had happened, right? What would the bouncer's response be? See you later. But imagine the positions were reversed. You're waiting in the line, waiting to get in. The celebrity gets out and then they stop. And then they say to the bouncer, they point at you and say, I know him. What happens then? Completely different story. And that's why I think it's so important for us to start with where Psalm 139 starts, that God is the one who knows us, and that is the true source of knowledge and the true source of our identity. But Psalm 139 also says that God knows you means much more than just an entry card into the club of salvation. It also means that he loves you and he rules you. So let's go on in the psalm to dwell on each one of them. So God loves you. Uh, we're focusing mainly on verses 13 to 16. Uh, you can't miss the real sense of intimacy and love that just flows through this psalm and that characterises God's knowledge of the psalmist David. Verse 5, you have encircled me, you have placed your hand upon me. Verse 10, your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. And most clearly of all, verses 13 to 16, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Uh, there's just a sheer beauty in this imagery, isn't there, of... of utter care in handling what is completely vulnerable. I love that image of God knitting or weaving us together with his own fingers. Uh, or in verse 16, as God oversees every differentiation of, of cells in our body and lovingly watches as each part is formed. And isn't the last part of the verse so incredible that the God of the universe has sat down and carefully planned and penned every single day of your life and how he will tend and care for you in every moment. That is astounding, isn't it? And again, ultimately, this is who we are. We are simply and solely those who are known by God and therefore loved by God. God just loves you because he made you for himself. And brothers, isn't that also the gospel? That we are loved and saved by grace alone in Christ. And so ultimately what makes us precious and valued is not our works or our performance before God, it's that he set his love on us despite our works and despite our flaws and failures. And this is such a helpful truth to keep coming back to in your heart as someone heading into ministry. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who rose to prominence in opposing the Nazi regime, regime uh, who became a, a leader and figurehead in the German resistance movement, he was imprisoned and eventually executed, of course, 
Uh, but he wrote a poem from prison about a year before his execution, which was called, Who Am I? Where he reflects on the question of his identity. And uh, we're going to go through that poem because I think it's so helpful. Um, in the beginning of the poem, he describes how he is perceived by others. Uh, who am I? They often tell me. I step out from my cell, composed, contented, and sure, like a lord from his manor. Who am I? They often tell me. I speak with my jailers, frankly, familiar and firm, as though I was in command. But then he moves on to describe himself in a far less positive and certain light. Am I really what others tell me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? Troubled, homesick, ill, like a bird in a cage, gasping for breath as though being strangled, empty of, and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted and ready to bid farewell to it all. Who am I? Am I this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time? In public, a hypocrite, and by myself, a contemptible, whining weakling? In the final part of the poem, uh, Bonhoeffer gives his wonderfully simple last answer. Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. Who I really am? You know me. I am yours, O oh God. I think it's so helpful. Uh, the ministry life, whether in congregational ministry or church planting, union ministry, parachurch ministry, whatever theological education, can be an absolute pressure cooker. Expectations of growth, stress of finances, difficult relationships and situations, they can all just really add up. You know, you think when you're bumbling village parson-like sermons are measured against the Christian speaker equivalents of supermodels, you know, those uber-eloquent and piercingly insightful scholar orators who get streamed over the internet, and who, you know, our congregations seem to give far more weight to than us. Uh, and your self-esteem as a preacher just seems to shrivel up every time you hear from your congregation member, thanks, that was a, a faithful sermon. Yeah, I didn't, nothing new, but, but great reminder. Or, or when your ministry numbers are falling, your church plant core members tell you that they're leaving, or mission work is just hard slog, no fruit, year after year. You can feel small and alone and like a total failure and fraud in ministry. So what we need to do is be humble and clear-minded and look for God's approval alone rather than the approval of men. And Psalm 139 tells us what sort of person and minister God approves of. And that is the one who knows that they are loved by him and precious to him no matter what the circumstances or the successes of their life, ministry, and even in our setting, study. But simply that he has set his love on them. So, I want to ask you, brothers, is that you? Do you find your identity, your value, your motivation for ministry simply and solely in the fact that God loves you? I hope you do. And if you look inside yourself and realize that you don't, that you've been trying to build it on your competence, your giftedness, your success, 
And I challenge you to take the opportunity now to reset. Let go of trying to build yourself on your performance and grab onto God's grace alone again. And, and you know the ironic thing is actually doing that will give you that wonderful, attractive freedom in your ministry. Yeah, to serve not because you have to, not because of other people's expectations or even your own expectations, but simply to give yourself freely and joyfully because your value comes from the fact that you are loved by the God who sees all things, including your service of him that may be unseen by anyone else. So is that the sort of ministry you want to characterize your life? I hope it is. So keep setting your heart on God's love for you alone as the engine room of everything you do to serve him. Then finally, uh, God knows you, God loves you, and now God rules you. We're going to focus on verses 23 to 24. We belong to God, and so, David says, we are to be totally and willingly mastered by God. And again, this is the core foundation of who we are. We are made to be a people who call God Lord, who listen to his voice and then subject ourselves to that voice. And you can see that, concern, that, that the psalm finishes with that driving concern because in verses 23 to 24, David ends the psalm the same way he began, with God searching and knowing him. Except that this time, at the end of the psalm, it isn't just a statement like at the beginning, it's an appeal and a prayer. Uh, for our first-year Greek and Hebrew students, a bit of a study bonus for you right now. What he has done is move from the indicative in verse 1 to the imperative in verse 23, 24. He says, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think this is especially pertinent for us as students here at Moore College. Because again, it reminds us that true knowledge is not mastering God's word, but being mastered by God's word. This is such a helpful orientation to your study because it means that if your study of God's word doesn't lead you to a changed life, you actually haven't learnt anything. You might smash your essays and exams and come out with first-class honours. You may be able to quote dead German scholars in your sleep chuck in a casual conversation, hyper-nerdy theological terms like perichoresis and actus purus and incurvatus. You may even be both cool and nerdy enough at the same time to actually understand verbal aspect. Now, I don't want to discourage you from any of these things. I hope you do make the most of your rigorous academic theological education in preparation for ministry. But I want to stress the point, at the end of the day, if your learning of God's word here at Moore does not lead you to walk in love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, to making more of Jesus and less of yourself, then again, you haven't really learned a thing. Because true knowing is not mastery of the word. True knowing is being mastered by the word. 
You see, it's not just our congregations who need to make sitting under God's word a lifelong activity. They're not the only ones who need to be challenged and rebuked and called to repentance and faith by it. Guys, they need to be led and taught by people who not only talk the talk, but also walk the walk. And can I stress, this is really hard in actual ministry because it's probably already happening to you. People do look to you as something of the guru who has the Christian life sorted out and under control. And there is a real danger in this that being seen in that way and and sort of being up front putting the face on to match, it can actually block you from being yourself led to real and painful repentance from sin. You can spend so much time preparing to teach others that your own relationship with God fades out of focus. And worst of all, your handling of the Bible can become a dry professional task rather than a life-giving engagement with God. You know, one of the things I've found hardest in vocational ministry is to maintain my own personal Bible read. Because, you know, when you get busy um, and you're spending all day in the Bible anyway, it, become, it becomes all too easy to start treating it as a textbook for teaching information to them and fail to see that it's also the sword of the Spirit by which God rules your heart. So I want to end with the challenge of this psalm. When was the last time you actually let God's word master you? When was the last time you asked God to search you, to know your heart, and to see if there was any offensive way in you? Uh, Do you need to shed the mask of respectability that being a Moore College student more college lecturer can bring. Humble yourself again and ask God to search you, cleanse you, and forgive you. Uh, Is there even now, under that facade of being on track in your Christian life because you're on track academically or in other people's perceptions, is there an area in your heart that you know is offensive to God that needs to be cut out by the scalpel of the Scriptures? no matter how painful it is. Brothers, can I urge you to do that so that it doesn't fester and poison your relationship with God and then flow on to poison your relationship with those around you and those who will be under your ministry. And I say this having been very confronted, even in the course of preparing this sermon, uh, with some very specific things in my own heart, Uh, that recent events have kind of brought to light I really need to bring before God. So as I close, can I give you a a moment just to think about you? What is that thing that you know is offensive to God? And can I plead and challenge you that we bring it before God together in fellowship and then commit ourselves to do whatever it takes to repent of it? So I'm going to ask that we pray the words of verses 23 to 24 all together in just a moment but I want to give you a moment to actually search your own heart and think about what you need to bring it before God. Who are you? You are the one known 
by the all-knowing God, the God who searches you and knows you, the God who loves you and who rules you. And so may we all find ourselves in being loved and mastered by him alone. Let's pray the words of verses 23 to 24 together as a prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.